9 out of 10 startups fail. Women and minority-led companies receive less than 10% of all venture capital. This is an environment designed for failure. Startup Hype Man's mission is to use the power of story to make success inevitable, not the exception. And this podcast is designed for entrepreneurs to share lessons learned from their stories so that you can figure out what whatever it takes means for your company to make it. Let's kick it. Like your like childhood or something like that? Yeah, yeah. a very traumatizing one. From the Hype HQ Recording Studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I am your host and the Startup Hype Man, Raj Nation. Every week we bring you real talk and unpack the behind the curtain strategies with the entrepreneurs who are doing it or who have been there, done that, all to help your startup grow up and stand out. Join the Hype Nation to catch every new episode, plus get resources and other stuff that actually help you, not the whack promotional junk that other companies try to shove down your throat. All you have to do is add your email at startuphypeman.com. Ready for some real talk? Time now for me, Raj Nation, to turn it over to, well, me, Raj Nation, for this week's conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Startup Hype Man podcast. Today on the show, we welcome Emmanuel Strashnoff. Emmanuel is the founder of Bubble, a company that actually lets you build web and mobile applications without having to know a single line of code. So, like, my best way to describe it would almost be like, Squarespace, but for designing any web, any web or mobile application. Uh, Emmanuel's company, Bubble, founded Bubble.is, has amassed 230,000 users with 10,000 monthly active users and an annual recurring revenue of $1.6 million. And he's done all of this by raising no capital, a completely bootstrapped venture. Emmanuel, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I'm super excited to talk to you, especially given you know, how much you've accomplished thus far. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this conversation as well, because our topic today is how do you get customers to fund development? Now, why is this on your mind? Why is this important to you? Well, it is important because it's very much at the core of how we did this with Bubble. I mean, not raising any money. And more than that, I think it actually had a very positive impact in how we shape both the campaign and the product. And I'm, I, I can't say for sure, but um, had we raised money much earlier and had we not tried to fund our development through customer pay, payments, like basically customers giving us uh, money for our service, we probably would have gone out of business way earlier uh, than that. And that actually happened to a few of our competitors. Like now, no-code tools are much more popular than they were when we started six years ago. But when we started six years ago, we were not the only ones. There were like two or three other teams that did things much more traditionally from a Silicon Valley standpoint, you know, going to Y Combinator, raise millions. And all of them so far, what I've seen, have shut down after a while because, I mean, we'll get into this uh, in a second, I'm sure. But uh, when you raise money, you... Um, you don't necessarily try to have a product that sells itself early enough. And then at the end of your runway, when you have to raise another round, if investors don't like you know, the uh, metrics you're showing, then you're in trouble. But I'm sure we'll get into this. We definitely will. And I, I think that's a great um, sort of like topic or, or way we can dive into further into that topic. Before we do all that, let's learn a little bit more about you. So you were, you are of uh, Russian origin, but born in Paris, um, yes. studying computer science and mathematics in college. You end up getting an MBA from Harvard. So like, obviously, you have a pretty, pretty well-esteemed uh, educational background. But 
Growing up in Paris, now I consider Paris, and you know, I'm an American, but I consider Paris like the land of art and culture and people philosophizing or, or sharing philosophy. So you have this more like math science background. Um, what's it like growing up in Paris? And so, so, so I, actually, I did not grow up in Paris. Uh, I grew up in the countryside. I was born in Paris, but then I moved when I was two uh, till 18. So I grew up surrounded by farms in Normandy, northwest of France. Okay. Where, well, where, for, thank you for correcting me there. So growing up in so, France in the countryside, how do you right. get into computers? <laughs> Well, actually, because when you're in the countryside, you don't have too much to do. And so um, my parents got me a computer when I was 15. I mean, it was, I'm 35, so it was before the web. It was when we were still using MS-DOS and Windows uh, for people, our audience that is a little bit older. And so uh, I had nothing else to do pretty much, you know, when it's raining on the Thursday night in November in uh, surrounded by farms, you know, you have to keep yourself busy. Normally, it tends to be pretty rainy. And so computer science was, I mean, I wouldn't say computer science, but programming was actually something great to do then. Yeah. I did two things, basically, when I was in, uh, and that you would actually see on my resume, I learned Chinese, and uh, I did a lot of uh, programming. Learning Chinese was a family thing, because my parents met in Beijing in 40 years ago, even though they're both French, uh, like Caucasian French, so they had no Chinese origin whatsoever, but they were both interested in China. I lived in China 40 years ago, and so I learned Chinese and computers, and played a lot uh, on computer and did a lot of programming, because, you know, in the countryside, you don't have that much to do. Had I been in Paris, it probably would have been different. Yeah, so, okay, so you get that first computer. Do you remember what, I guess, what were the first things you were doing on the computer? Were you playing games? Were you already starting to code yourself? I, I, wasn't, I was never a very big gamer, actually. So it was more like programming fairly serious things. So I remember I was 12. Uh, I was trying to make a little bit of money selling, um, actually it was inspired by what our English teacher, so we, you know, we speak French over there, so we had an English teacher, you know, programming something so that we would learn English words, it would keep asking us, you know, what the English words were until you cut them right to help us learn, and there was something running on MSS, and so I ended up doing something fairly similar on, uh, for German, and I ended up selling that to my uh, classmates for like, you know, Five dollars or something, uh, a floppy disk, which was uh, which was pretty cool. So I never, I mean, I did game a little bit with my play video games with my brother, but not too much. I mean, I was more into doing internal things. You could call me boring, I guess. <laughs> it's funny but, you mentioned, but like, but, yeah. but I was making money, so that was actually right. Yeah, that that, that that's the plus side of it. It's funny you mentioned the like the floppy disk, right? The actual floppy, the big ones, right? I remember. No, no, the, those were, were the three-inch... Three uh, oh, you're talking about the smaller ones. The smaller okay. ones, yeah. So they were actually like hard disks, but they were still called floppy disks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember the original floppy disks. I remember once we had gotten to a point in like technology evolution that they were obsolete. So that was around like, well, I mean, pretty quick after growing up. But uh, I, my, in like seventh grade, I remember one of my friends just still had like a crate of them in his basement. And this was like, you know, AOL 4.0 was out at this point. So it's not like it was, they were being used at all, but we, we went from using those floppy disks, like, you know, several years prior as actual like learning software to then using them as disks We were flinging at each other in the basement to play like ninja battles with each other. So it's yeah. funny to think of just like how quickly technology changes and, oh, yeah. Yeah. and, and just how things you were cherished so heavily became obsolete so quickly. Well, it's, it's exactly what we're trying to do with computer uh, coding languages, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and that, that kind of leads me to, like, 
that's really what bubble is about is it's, it's trying to make at least something obsolete. So, yep. and, and again, for everyone listening, the, the purpose or the existence of bubble is it is a visual programming language for web and mobile applications. And the goal is make coding obsolete. So you can build applications on bubble without typing any code. Uh, it's a point and click editor. So just like right. you may be used to doing, you know, I would say not even WordPress because WordPress requires a good deal of understanding of the back end to be able to do it well. Right. Uh, more like maybe a Squarespace though. Um, how did you even get into Bubble? And, and, and if you can maybe even talk about is, is Harvard part of that journey in, in making Bubble or, or where does the coding start to where you're like, you know what, coding doesn't matter anymore. Very, very much so, but in an indirect way. So I got it. So after college, I went and moved to China and did management consulting for a few years. So very far from technology. And then I wanted to do finance. And so that's why I got my MBA at Harvard. And during my MBA, I realized finance was not for me. And so I tried a whole bunch of things. I even ended up interning in fashion. Like, don't ask me why. So I, I, did, I did see you were the special assistant to the CEO of Prada. Wait, we have to talk right. about that for a second. <laughs> How? I was, I was his chief of staff. I mean, I was, I was doing his personal consulting job for like three months. I was between my two years of business school and that was great. I, mean, I had an amazing time, but, uh, but it was still not my thing. Yeah. And so, and so where Harvard came in actually is because at the end of school, uh, I graduated without a job, fairly certain at the time that I wanted to go back to programming and technology, uh, actually through fashion, because what happened is that during my second year, I started working on an idea, a startup idea in the fashion space, but that would be digital, of course, because Today, you know, that's a modern medium is either an app or a website. And I started working with some, someone technical at the time because I was not technical anymore. I mean, I was very far from coding. And I realized I was working with this girl. If, um, I was working with a girl from MIT. I realized working with her that I actually didn't care much about the luxury products, but I was much more interested in the product that we would show on the digital screen. So basically the, the web app or the mobile app. And so I, well, I realized, okay, let's give up this fashion thing, which was fun for three months, but that's it. And let's go back to more traditional and I would say real software. Not saying that other things are not real software, but you know, software for the for the sake of software, which is something like Bubble. It's a pure software, you know, it's not an e-commerce website. Uh, and where Harvard came in is that so I graduated without a job and I got introduced to uh, this guy that actually had that idea of Bubble uh, before me uh, and was looking for a business co-founder. Uh, and so I was in business school. He was Harvard College five years. Five years earlier and so we had mutual friends from the harvard community some alums basically someone that went to college with him to harvard college went to business school with me uh five years later and then so someone made the connection uh and i it's actually interesting because um i had an expiring offer from a software company in new york um, the day i met him i mean it was expiring the following day so we actually decided to partner on our first meeting because i was like well if we want to try something it's going to be now or never um, turns out that that's what Josh, so Josh is my business partner. So he's, he, he, at that time, the company was not called Bubble, nor it was incorporated, but the idea was already there. Uh, but we named it in, incorporated uh, together. I think it, he wrote the first line of code maybe in January 2012, and I joined him uh, June, in June. Um, but that's what he called his double mistake. So he was looking for a business co-founder because he thought... Um, the business was ready, the product was ready to get some uh, early users and traction, which was completely wrong. But the second mistake he made is to see in me a business person because it turned out I'm a much more of a product than a 
mm. technology person than a, than a business person. I mean, I had a great time at Harvard, but it's not necessarily what I like doing. Um, and so those two mistakes basically canceled each other. And uh, six years later, we still work together. So. Let's dive into, you know, we have the understanding of how Bubble got started. Um, we have the understanding of at least top line what Bubble is. Now, again, I mentioned in your introduction, Bubble's at 230,000 total users or accounts, uh, 10,000 active users monthly and annual revenue of uh, 1.6 million, which is, you know, these are no small feats whatsoever. Uh, sort of the key is that a lot of this was, or all of this has been a bootstrapped venture. So our topic yep. is how do you get customers to fund development? When we introduced it a few minutes back, you mentioned how taking on investment would have probably killed the company a few years ago. Can you, yeah. like, let's expand upon that now. Like, really, what do you mean by that? Um, so it, it's actually something I formalized a little bit um, because since we've been doing this for six years, we've been revisiting every six year and uh, six months, nine months, whether we should stop bootstrapping and raise money. And so the important thing that uh, in my mind, when you decide whether you're going to take external money from investors is, are the interests and the incentives of investors very well aligned with the ones of your users? And turn that in technology, and that's where you know the VC industry works. It, it works pretty well. Uh, for instance, you know, if you're Airbnb or Facebook and you take investors' money, well, investors are going to want as many users as possible. On Facebook, you're going to want as many friends as possible because you want to find your friends. If you're trying to sell or to buy or Airbnb, you want as many sellers and as many buyers. And investors want the same thing. So it works pretty well. But what we do, it actually doesn't. And what I mean by that is, especially early on, uh, by definition, what we're doing is fairly limited compared to writing code because it takes some time to get to some things that's very flexible without writing code. That took us, in my mind, we took us about four years to get to something where really I could say, yes, you can build a lot of things without. Before that, it was a little bit embarrassing to answer that question. And the problem you have with investors is that investors are going to want as many users as possible. That's pretty much as, as gonna, quickly as possible. As quickly as possible. That's pretty much what they're going to care about because they're not going to play with you. I mean, no offense to investors out there, but they're not going to spend too much time on the product. You know, if you tell them, yeah, you know what, we worked very hard on the product, it's much better than before, but they don't see charts, you know, going up exponentially, they're not going to be happy. On the other hand, though, existing users, like users that are already, most of our users build companies on Bubble. So instead of hiring a technical co-founder, they launch a startup. They launch a startup using Bubble, so we are extremely important to them. They don't necessarily want us to have a lot of users. They want the product to work extremely well and be fast and not bug-free and be able to do anything they want without writing code. And so you actually have a pretty big conflict here because you cannot develop you know, early on. You have to be very focused. And so it was something that we decided with, my, with Josh, with my business partners for the first few years, to basically not aggressively try to onboard new users. I mean, we would have some, like, I think for some time we're like, you know, 50 new users a day. So it's okay. It's not gigantic, but it's fine. Uh, we're not too, trying aggressively to have more. On the other hand, we were very committed to make sure that the experience of people that would be on the platform and would already trust it, that their experience would go extremely well because we wanted to work, prove our thesis that you can do things without code. Because now that we have something that works, people say, oh, yeah, it's possible. But believe me, like six years ago, people were telling us it was impossible to do that. Engineers were like, you know, you need a technical person. You're going to generate crappy software. That's not going to be good. So we needed to prove our thesis, and we needed to have a strong success stories, which we ended up having. Like now, we have three of our users went to Y Combinator. Another one raised like three hundred sixty million dollars. So it's real businesses that don't have engineers. But it took us about five years or six years to get there. 
And so we decided to focus very early on, on those users that were already on the platform. And in that sense, it's much better to actually find users that pay you because then back to the original theme, like about you know, funding your development to customers, because you make sure you work for them and that you don't work for investors. Again, if both investors and users want the same thing, great. If they don't, think about it twice because it's a little bit dangerous. So with that said, you know, you, it's like, okay, it's great to have the people who are using the platform paying for the product, right? Now, in the case of Bubble, like, I totally see that if it's, say, a, a service-based business or like a managed service of some kind where like a customer is signing a $100,000 or $500,000 contract, right? There's big quantities of money coming in in one right. swath. Now, Bubble's pricing is like ranging from $62 a month to $445 or $500 a month. So you got to get a lot of people on the platform, right? Right. And, but, but so that, that's the trick a little bit is that early on, uh, we had special deals with a few customers that for whom the platform was extremely important. So to be transparent, we found one startup, the, the startup that I just mentioned that raised $360 million. Well, at, at that time, they hadn't raised that much, but at that time, they had, has, had raised, I think, something like four or five million. They had no engineer. It was very hard. It was a fintech startup, so it was not necessarily easy for them to hire engineers in San Francisco, and they needed to have a second version of their platform. The V1 was not something they could expand on, and they were basically fucked. I mean, they had big problems. <laughs> so we went to, we told them, yeah, I mean, we're not going to build the app for you because that's not what we do, but we make sure that we do what's humanly possible for Bubble to be good enough for what we're trying to do. And mm-hmm. for this, you're going to pay us 10K a month. So... 10K a month, you know, it's not $500,000 a, uh, a year, but, you know, it's 120K a year, so it's not bad. And that basically pays for the life of two guys, and that was our lives. Yeah, was, so... we didn't have employees. So, so that, that's, you have to be flexible at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, today, you would never, I would not do that uh, because you need to reach a certain scale. I mean, today, we are client-funded but because, you know, we have thousands of customers. But back then, I think we had, like, something like, you know, 50 to 100, but one of them were, was representing 80% of our revenue. So early on, you're doing a combination of product and service to get. Uh, so big- so that, 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 that's the interesting thing in our case. And I don't want to say it's something that is, is easily replicable by other people because I don't know if, if it is. Uh, but it was never a service in the sense that we never did work just for them. We were just, you know, making sure the platform would have the functionality they need. So effectively, because it was still very early on for us, I would say 80 to 90% of what we did for them was useful for everyone. And by the way, we never pushed code only for one customer. Mm. We had a very clear deal that the IP would be ours and that would be made available to everyone. Um, And it's actually a deal, uh, something we did. So with them, we had a retainer uh, because they had enough money and they wanted to make sure that we would not tell them, oh, sorry, we're too busy this month. We cannot do that. But we also had like ad hoc one-time deals with other customers where it happened sometime that the, a guy emailed me and said, I have an investor meeting next week. I really need to be able to record sound on the web app built on Bubble. Can you add that feature? And I said, yes, I can do that this week, but it's going to be 5K. And the guy was like, sure. Because, you know, um, at some point that was, imp- that was important. So great thing of doing that is that you get your customers to invest in the platform because once someone has paid $5,000, not to take something and go home, but just to make the platform better so that it's better <laughs> for him, it increases his trust in the, th- in the system. They're not going to leave. Yeah. In, invest more. I mean, once you paid, uh, financed a little bit the development of the product for a feature that you care about, well, firstly, you know that if you have another need that will come, uh, you can probably talk to the founding team to get it. And also, you know, why would you leave something that you invested on? Yeah. And 
so I just want to sort of recap what you just said there, because I think it's really insightful and important. You were basically fielding existing user inquiries and saying, and what, what they said, hey, we need this. You said, okay, I can build that, not just for you. I can build that for the entire platform. And because it's coming on your special request, it's going to cost this much money to push that update out you know, in the next X days or months or weeks. So not only are they getting what they want, right? Specifically, they're getting the feature they want, but everyone else is also getting that feature. And there's a decent chance they may also need that at some point. And on top of that, there, I think there's a little emotional pull here too, because you're saying, or, or, you know, if they're paying $5,000 to add that feature, they kind of have in their head, Hey, this platform that a lot of people are using, it has sound because of me, right? I'm the one who asked for that. Yeah, I mean, and so uh, because community is a very big thing, that's another great thing of not raising money because you have to do things in a cheap way. And for us, because I was handling personally most of custom support tickets myself and I couldn't do it, I started this forum that is now a very big asset for us where our users talk to each other. So when someone, I mean, we don't do sponsored features too much anymore because now we're pretty happy with the core and we have a plugin system so that people can add features themselves. But back then I would, you know, give a shout out to the guy that invested, um, that paid for that. And, you know, you would, you would get a lot of likes you know, because yeah. it's a forum, right? You have likes and those things actually matter when you're part of a community, you know, when yeah. people say thank you, this is actually something important. One thing we've even done, even though that was not working extremely well from some reasons, we can get into it, is crowdfunding. Mm. I actually thought about crowdfunding some features. So at some point I had built something on Bubble, like a simple web app where people could vote. And then I would email all the people that voted for a specific feature and say, hey, do you want to chip in $100 or something? Effectively, from an operational standpoint, it was quite a pain to do that because I had yeah. to collect funds one by one. and That was not working extremely well. And also, the, the good thing with only dealing with one person is you make sure that actually that will fit exactly his needs. That's what you get. If you pay 5K, we push a feature for everyone. But if there is a small thing that you actually need, for instance, you know, for the sound recording feature that I was talking about, if you need to do pose and unpose, well, you're going to tell me that and I'm, I'm going to build that right away. If I have, you know, 50 people that pay for something, I'm not exactly sure it's going to work for everyone. And that's going to lead to unhappiness. Yep, 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 yep. And I think in your version of the crowdfunding model, which, you know, I'm not, we're not talking like going on CrowdRise or CrowdVest or Republic. We're talking about like going to your forum saying, hey, who wants this feature? Click yes. And then everyone who clicks yes, you're emailing them one by one, say, hey, can you pay a hundred bucks? Not only is it probably a pain because it's very manual, but at the same time, there's a big difference between someone saying they would like to see a new feature and actually paying for that feature, right? Uh, if it's just like, yeah, that seems like a good idea. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a thumbs yeah. Well, it's actually something that uh, I wanted to say in general with the great thing about paying customers very early on is that you're sure they actually like what you do and that they're willing to pay for it even though it's limited. I think one of the biggest problems with friends when you start a company is that they want to be supportive. So they're going to tell you what you're doing is great. Right. But, but the next question should be, okay, then give me your credit card and let's actually put you on the plan and you know, you're going to pay $50 a month. And then they're like, ah, you know what? I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then basically, basically what that tells you is that when people say your idea is cool, that probably means it's not a good idea for a business. You want people that say, Oh, you already have something that is hardworking. I needed some. Okay, put me on it. I'm willing to pay for it right now. Yeah, and that's that's actually what we found. I mean, for the first three years, we probably yeah had like 50 paying customers, but we knew that if we were to stop serving serving them, if you 
if we shut down the platform, basically, the business would die. So they were like extremely engaged. They were on bubble, like, you know, 15 hours a day, literally. I was, it was very early on. So we had a lot of, you know, we needed to adjust the interface and everything. I was on Skype with some of them literally every day, you know, talking to, you know, what was working, what was not working. And they were not like, oh, yes, it's a cool idea. I was like, I know it's buggy, it's slow, because at the beginning, you know, the platform was really not great. It was not pretty, had a lot of limitations, but they had no other option. So, you know, they really wanted to use it, even though it was a crappy product. And that's the kind of people you need to find. And the prime, again, once you're going back to raising money, when you raise money, you get a lot of cash very quickly without necessarily doing the work to try to find these people. And once you find these people, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean you're on a billion dollar idea because maybe it turns out that, you know, you did find the 10 people in the United States that actually want your product and you have a hundred total uh, in, across the country and that's not going to help you. But there is a pretty strong chance that once you have those few tens of people that are super excited about your product that you found by hand, uh, th then the product gets better the need that you identified as a problem because initially you saw a need as an entrepreneur is going to get uh, more widespread and then those 10 or 100 people are going to become millions and that's why we build a very successful company. Yes. And but you need to do that first step because if you don't do that first with a few people to make sure they actually would pay for it, you might just do something cool that all your friends say is cool, but that no one really needs. Right, right. And, and you obviously don't want to be in that situation. So you, yeah. know, you said at first you can get a few people to pay for it. Um, earlier, you know, a few minutes back, you mentioned that at this point now with, you know, enough users, you're not doing like the one-off services for cash anymore. You're just going off the subscription yeah. revenue, right? Right. Uh, at what point, I guess, I guess for, for our listeners, how many users did you get to, to where you said, okay, we don't need to keep doing the one-off, you know, like high cash services. Now we just are building subscription platform or revenue. Um, so we didn't think about it in those terms. We actually stopped doing it because we didn't have the bandwidth to do it. Mm. We just had, you know, a usual stream of small things that you don't charge people for because I don't charge people for fixing bugs. I don't charge people for the platform to be faster. I, don't, I charge pe people, for instance, to have a record sound element on the page. Mm -hmm. um, so we didn't think in terms of number of users. Now, thinking back, I think it's not, it was not a matter of number of users. We stopped doing cash deals when we started making more than 20K a month. Basically, because 20K a month meant, you know, like if I charge a feature, because 5K is on the high end of what I would charge, usually it would be more between two and four. That means, you know, 2,000 out of 10, 20 is great, but it's not transformative. When we were much below that, you know, when we're making like, you know, 10K or, you know, 7K a month, and then you add another three or four, well, that actually makes a very big difference uh, for the business. You know, that pays for, you know, let's be practical, you know, it pays for the co-working space for the next six months. <laughs> uh, no, like, like right. you know, when you start a business, you know, that's what matters, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's why we were uh, doing this, but we stopped that at 20K just because the return was not that high. And yeah. after that, it became also, um, I mean, you have to be very careful with that communication. I think today, if I charge people to add a feature, they'd be like, wait, you're an established business, you know, they can see the activity we have, why would you do this? Is it a one-person shop? And we don't, we're right. not, now we have a team. So now when people want features, we don't tell them we're going to build them right away, but we try to do our best, but we have a team of engineers that build them. Yeah. Back then, it was just the two of us. So it was part, of, and people knew that. They knew I was a founder. I was directly interacting with them. So it was much easier to do that. Today, I don't think that would go well with our community anymore. And how many people is the team now, the bubble team? 10 people. Awesome. Is it co-founders, the rest is engineers, or are there other roles as well? 
Um, we have like my co-founder and I, we both, I mean, we do everything, but we're still mostly technical. Then we have five engineers, two customer support people, um, uh, which is customer support for us being way more complicated than just making sure your credit card charges go through or refunds. You know, it's really like, you know, going in the user app, making sure that you understand what they're doing and helping yeah. them figuring out how to do things more efficiently. And I have one business operation person and one documentation person. Yeah. Great. Great. I have got one more question here for you. So when we look at the users of Bubble, um, who would you say is your target customer? Because you've got on like the website, like, hey, is this a hobby? Is this a personal project? Are you part of a team? Is this part of a company? Who are you targeting with this platform? So the, that's interesting uh, because it's not really a, it's the person in terms of needs, not necessarily a person in terms of demographics. We're targeting people that need to build software and custom software and that don't have either the technical resources or the financial resources to do so. And that can be found in a lot of different places. So where we started was with young business school graduates or college graduates wanted to start companies, mm-hmm. non-technical people, because those people... Uh, actually, it's a word I didn't pronounce earlier when I said you need to find paying customers. Those people are desperate, you know, desperate, desperate. to find technical. <laughs> yeah. no, and it, it is very important. I mean, when you're right. building a business, you want to find desperate people to use your product. And mm-hmm. that's when I was saying, you know, you need someone that is really to pay, uh, ready for to pay a crappy product is because it's desperate. You know, and our first customers were desperate. You know, they, they needed to find engineers. We're in New York City. It's impossible to find. And even if you find them, it's going to be $150,000. So it's really way too much. So they were desperate. They had no other option. It was either us or offshore outsourcing in Romania or India, which doesn't necessarily go well either, you know, for a lot mm-hmm. of reasons. Yeah. So, um, so we started historically with a lot of, you know, non-technical founders. So that's one type of people that uses us a lot. But now slowly it's moving more into, again, people that need to build custom software that can be like, you know, a small business owner instead of paying, you know, thirty or $40,000 a local development shop to have a new system to manage his inventory or invoicing system or whatever that is. If he cannot find a SaaS product of the shelf, well, he's going to have, he's going to build it himself or usually have a young analyst uh, because it's usually something where you put a young graduate that joined the company on bubbles to build it himself. So we have that. And there's a third use case we have, um, and that's where the personal thing and the hobby thing comes uh, comes in, is that it turns out you have a lot of people out there that like building six things, a little bit for the sake of building things uh, that were not necessarily able to do it before because it didn't start coding young enough and it's a pain to catch up on. And so they build local thing, local projects for themselves. Um, one example that uh, we had one day was someone built an advent calendar, uh, had the tradition to do that with his girlfriend. You know, every year they would um, offer each other an advent calendar, you know, before Christmas. You know, yeah. every day you have a gift behind the thing. And one day he forgot, uh, one year he forgot. And so he built one on Bubble where, you know, you would click huh. and that was opening the thing and the girl was very happy. We didn't make money out of that because, you know, that's done on a hobby plan. But this is actually exactly what Bubble is for. It's like, you know, empowering people to do things, whether it's at home or at the office, with the idea that people that do that at the office, we basically pay for the people that do that at home. You know, that's a free model. You know, you have like more paying customers that let other people use it for free. I mean, I don't want to charge someone to use that for an advent calendar, but I don't think it's a less meaningful use of the product than someone that raised $360 million. We just need to have the right pricing to get more money from someone that raised $360 million versus a teenager that does that for his girlfriend. Um, But but, so back to who uses us, it's really people that need to build custom things 
and that didn't start coding. That's, uh, and that can be, we even have like larger corporations like Fortune 500 companies. We have some teams that, you know, get pushed by the IT too often because it takes too long or it's too expensive. And they're like, you know what, let's just build mm-hmm. ourselves this. We don't have technical talent, but now we have a tool that lets us do that without it. Yeah. So a couple um, notes I have just coming off of what you just said there is, and, and I want to call back to an episode that we recorded uh, last year with a, a man named Josh Carter. He's the current CEO of Patriot Bootcamp. Um, and he spoke all about his experience having launched and then had to, having to shut down a startup and how really it was around. They didn't, they didn't, they weren't clear on who their target audience was. And I'm always an advocate for like, be clear on who your target market is. Don't try and be too many things to too many different people. You won't know where to go. But this is a, even, even though you're saying it's kind of a quote unquote for everyone platform, even within that, the two things that are important to understand for everyone listening is the first people you went to were those business school grads. Like you had at least a core starter group. And then as you expanded, there's a common, even, even though the people may have different jobs, different use cases, there's still a common need. And that's, that, that's sort of like that desperation aspect yeah. you talked about. They need to build something. Exactly. There is a common need and they go to the same places online. And exactly. that is very important for us. So they read the same blogs, they read yes. the same posts, which is for us very important. It's actually um, business schools uh, came the second wave when we did our uh, beta at Harvard. But before that, we would go to tech meetups in New York, actually, mm. like tech meetups, you know, tech co-founder meetups where everybody goes to try to find a tech guy and you only have one, like one tech guy for like nine business people looking for an engineer. And we went to a few of them and said, look, we cannot be your CTO, but we have something that can let you let you start without a CTO. And yeah. that's how we found them. And those communities are very powerful. You, when you start a business, ideally you need to find that. If you don't have that, it's going to be very challenging. Yeah. And it's right. You're going to specific places to find the people. You're not just shouting out of the gate. Hey, anybody come use us, please. It's a specific yeah. approach. And so th- this strategy or th- this this mindset around the market and, and who's the users. Uh, this is what's called, I first heard this term from Devin McDonald, who's the VC partner at a VC firm called Open View Partners or Open View Ventures out of, uh, I think, Boston. And they said they look for, they tend to invest in what they call horizontal companies. So for example, they invest in Calendly, which for everyone who's listening, you probably know what Calendly is, but Calendly has many different types of users. It's not just, hey, we are going after Fortune 100 uh, executives who do this. I use Calendly, a Fortune 100 exec use Calendly. Emmanuel, you may also use Calendly. Uh, There are a lot of different types of people who use Calendly, but the need is the same in that we're we struggle with the trying to figure out scheduling back and forth. We just need an easy way to get a meeting scheduled. So that's what you've got here is like the horizontal market where there are people who look different, have different jobs, different roles, but the need is there. They need to build something and, and do it relatively quickly. Yep. Before we wrap up, can you let our listeners know where they can find bubble, where they can learn more and where they can uh, get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, well, so if, usually if you Google Bubble, actually, we should be the first thing that comes out. But if not, it's bubble.is. Um, Which is impressive. 
that because bubble yeah, can mean a lot of things. <laughs> I, I, yes, I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. Or if you type bubble visual programming, that you're definitely sure to find us at the top. Uh, and the best way to reach out um, is probably to email contact at bubble.as. The team is small enough that if someone mentions that they heard me talk on the pod on this podcast, uh, I would probably get that email. Like uh, our support team will flag that and that will come back to me. So that's probably the best way. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Now to wrap up, we'll close how we close out every show, which is um, coming to sort of our final answer to the topic question for today based on our discussion. So I'll go first, then I'll toss it to you to close out, Emmanuel. Our topic today was how do you get customers to fund development? So the, the key things that I took away from this were early on, figure out who needs more out of you know, the, the product more or less, or, or let them come to you and build for them, but, but charge for that on top of it. Don't just do it for free. Or this isn't a route you took, but I've seen other companies do this. Um, have some type of like add-on consulting service that pairs with the product where you can get you know, that $5,000, $10,000 invoice you can send out to them um, where it's like it's technology, but there's, there's, a, there's like a management fee on top of it or like maybe a kickstart fee or some type of consulting going on with it that allows you to get in you know, more capital up front. Emmanuel, how do you get customers to fund your development? Uh, yeah, I mean... Um identify who needs your product, find pockets of desperate people, and resist the temptation to take outside money from investors because as soon as you start having money from investors, um, you're not gonna do that work because it's very hard at first to find those customers. On the flip side though, once you have them, it actually makes your life much easier because you don't have any conflict to manage. You just need to make your customers happy and that's the best thing you can do as a business owner. So just go for it. Emmanuel Strashnoff, Thank you so much for joining us today. I, it was it was my pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It was great. That brings us to a close. Did you like what you heard? Did it tingle your earbuds? Support your startup ecosystem and share this episode with another founder to help them. If you don't have anyone in mind, then leave a rating and review of the show on iTunes so more entrepreneurs can learn about it. And if you want more, head to startuphypeman.com and click on the knowledge section to get a bonus blog post written by this week's guest where they unpack the topic even more. Remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Startup Hype Man is more than a podcast. In fact, we support startups across the United States and globally develop sales and marketing acumen with messaging that stands out to customers and stands apart from competitors. Learn more and fill out a form at StartupHypeMan.com if you want to chat. Shout out to this week's guests for spending their time with us and shout out to music artist Sir the Baptist for providing our show's theme song. Catch you next time. Hype Man out. Word up. Raise up. Got you howling at the moon. Yeah. This is dance with the devil. Instead of sundown too. Yeah. This is dance with the devil. Tell me what you gonna do. This is dance with the devil. And if you can't get it loose, then they fall into the truth. It got you howling at the moon. Yeah. This is dance with the devil. Instead of sundown this is dance with the devil girl. Tell me what you gonna do. No. This is dance with the devil girl. And if you can't get a loose, then it's, it's a dance with the devil.